Good to see you all and uh, invite you to take your Bible, if you would, and open to Hebrews chapter 3. The text is also recorded for you in the bulletin if you want to read there. We will be looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's turn our attention now to the word of our God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Gracious God in heaven, we thank you that even in the midst of challenge of uncertainty, of chaos from without and even from within, that you are faithful. And we thank you for your word that is our guide, that it illumines our very path and indeed guides us to Christ who is king, who is the great prophet and priest of his church. So I pray, O oh God, that in whatever ways that your word would correct us, rebuke us, would you do that today so that we might have our minds and hearts filled with the mind of Christ and think your thoughts after you. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it hardly made sense to the first century church. In fact, the idea began to border on the preposterous. The early Christians were made aware by prophetic ministry and that ministry through the Lord Jesus himself, that he was the one who, as was expressed faithfully, regularly, was the promised one. He was the fulfillment of the promise. In fact, Paul will say that all of God's promises have been realized in Christ Jesus. That he was the Son of God in power. He was the King of kings. But the first century church began to have some questions. In fact, they faced a real problem. How do we make sense of the kingship of Jesus Christ? As the one who is professed and proclaimed as the answer to the promises of God to bless his people. Well, 
There were two major persecutions in the first century. Some of, one of them we know more about than the other, just from our, the way in which history has unfolded. But in AD 49, the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. Now that include, included both Jews and Christians, because at that early stage in the development of the church, there was not a clear distinction in the cultural landscape between Jews and Christians. So as Jews were expelled from Rome, so too were Christians. You might remember in the book of Acts how Aquila and Priscilla were exiled from Rome, and they came to Corinth. They were part of what Claudius the emperor described, a general plague which infests the whole world. Much more familiar to us is Claudius's successor, who in AD 59 became emperor, and his name was Nero. It was Nero's mother that had actually arranged to have Claudius poisoned so that Nero could become the next emperor. Well, how did Nero thank his mother? He had her poisoned as well. He then, in the same year, had his wife murdered because he wanted to marry another woman. As we know from our history books, he was a ruthless, godless, and intimidating creature. And in AD 64, most of you will remember the great fire in Rome that many in Rome blamed on Nero himself. Well, Nero did not appreciate being the object of the blame of this fire. What was the solution? Blame the Christians. So that's what he did. You'll remember that there was arrest, torture, legendary persecution, the Secular pagan historian Tacitus in his annals records it this way. Christians were covered with the skins of wild animals. They were torn apart by dogs or were nailed to crosses or some of them doomed to flames by which the emperor himself lighted his own garden. The early church was facing persecution. Evidently, the audience to whom the book of Hebrews has, was written had not yet experienced persecution to death itself, but they were not unfamiliar with this pronounced and life-defining persecution. They were homeless. They were scattered. They were impoverished. They were alone. They were away from family members. They were away from that which was familiar. They were scorned and threatened by the governments. Yet, none of those problems were the real problem. And as the author of Hebrews writes in the opening chapters, he addresses the creative persecution as well as the perverse cultures and said, this is not your problem. Yes, the people to whom he wrote were fed up, they were forlorn, but their real problem is that they were on the threshold of becoming faithless operating as though Jesus Christ was really not the promised one, operating as though he was really not the king, operating as though he was really not that one mediator between God and man. You see, the greatest risk that these early Christians faced was not from without, but actually from within. Seeing things according to their own myopic set of lenses, 
rather than trusting God's word. Well, it's not difficult to be sympathetic, is it? Think about it. The degree of suffering that they were facing, the public ridicule and ostracizing, the loss of job, the loss of respect, the loss of connection with family, the scattering, the skepticism and cynicism that would ensue from such experiences. The degradation of religious freedoms led them to the question, how can Jesus possibly be the one of whom the Old Testament prophets wrote? Or to put it in perhaps shorthand, how can Jesus really be Jesus when my life stinks? That's a summary of the context of the book of Hebrews. Today, many of you find your moment most troublesome. Who would have thought just a few months ago that I would be looking at a smattering of people in this room hiding half of your faces? The racial violence, the riots in the streets, the untrustworthy media, an election that many say is so chock full of importance that it's the most critical in American history. I would say to you that the Spirit of Christ has something to say to us today because we are threatened to not think about these things as we are. The threat is not from without, it is actually more from within. The Spirit of Christ speaks directly to you in your cultural moment. You see, your great threat this morning is not wars over mask wearing. It's not the threat of socialism infringing upon your religious rights. It's not the demands of the LGBTQ, ABCDEFG movement. It is not the normalizing of aberrant sexuality. It is not the tolerance movement being tolerant of everyone and everything except you. It's not the threat of having the same president in office or a new president in office. Therein is not the source of your threat as you make your wandering through the wilderness as you look to the promised land. The threat before us this morning is that we will interpret all of these things according to our own wisdom, a wisdom from below, according to the paradigms of the day, as though we will begin to think that the solutions to our problems lie in cultural, political, financial or social changes. You are threatened to get sucked into the vortex of the media, of the talking heads of radio and of television and of internet news. You are threatened with the very likelihood that you will begin to believe that Jesus isn't quite up to meeting you where you are in this moment that you will begin to think and behave as though Jesus is powerless to meet the challenges of your day. Well, Hebrews, in its opening chapters, addresses that very thing. And Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, calls us to think very differently about our wilderness moments. 
wherein we are called to relinquish earthbound paradigms and relish this Jesus whom God the Father has sent. In the next few minutes together, I want to really challenge our thinking through the words of Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. I want you to understand that you will only grasp your cultural moments rightly if, number one, you know your value to the God of heaven, and secondly, if you know your place in history, knowing your value to God and your place in history. First, let's talk about your value. You need to understand who you are. Who are we? Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Isn't it interesting that the author of Hebrews, as he wants you to understand who you are, begins with who Jesus is. He is described here as the apostle. Now, it might seem a little odd to your ears that Jesus would be called the apostle. When you think of the apostles, you think of those whom Jesus has sent. Let me remind you that Jesus only sent the twelve because the Father had first sent him. And the context of Hebrews is a reminder in the midst of our wilderness moments that God is in control. The God who sent Jesus is governing all things on the stage of history. He is at work. In fact, as we will see in the next few moments, he is not only at work, but this Jesus whom he has sent to carry out the mission that he has designed is the central story of all of history. This one whom the apostle, I'm sorry, whom the writer of Hebrews describes as an apostle is also described as a high priest. Why does that matter? Because the calling of the apostle was to serve as a high priest. I don't have time to walk us through the robust theology and history that imbues this term with significance and meaning, but let me say it this simply. Sin is not merely a conception. It's not an idea. It is a corrupting reality in your life, your heart, and your thinking. Real sin is met by a real Jesus, the author of Hebrews wants us to know. He was sent, therefore, apostle. His apostleship was framed by the redemption that he has come to carry out, the salvation and rescue of his people. In verse 6, this high priest and apostle is described as God's son. But it is interesting that that language of sonship is the entry point for us to begin to see who we are. Verse 1 again opens up with this statement. Therefore, holy brothers, that's language of brothers and sisters. It's the people of God. Your 
description here is that you are holy brothers and sisters. What does the term holy mean? Well, we, we know the moral contours of that, but don't belittle the meaning of holiness by thinking only in moral categories. It's a comprehensive analysis that in Christ you are consecrated, you are set apart. You take on a whole new identity as those who are holy unto God. Some of you have had the experience of living cross-culturally learning a new language, you know the rigors and the demands of that. But one of the things you realize is that when you move to a new place, people don't see the world exactly the way that you do. And, and you, you realize that the cultural dimension is, is very difficult to put your finger on. You discover it as you live it and taste it. And it takes years, sometimes decades, to begin to grasp it. Well, when you have entered into the kingdom of God, or to use the language of Hebrews 3, as you are a member of his house, there are new norms, new cultural identifying markers that are yours as the family of God. Your entire life as a holy brother and sister is now defined by the rules of God's house. This means that you are to think differently. You see the world differently. There's no need, then, to fear the culture or the society. There's no need to feel out of control, no need to worry, no need to invest the kind of emotional energy that we are so tempted to do in such times in our nation's life and history. We get so worked up and worried when, in fact, our position is absolutely secure. We're a member of his house. Jesus is the Son of God. You are his brothers and sisters. And in fact, in chapter 2, as he describes his role as the pioneer who is leading us through the wilderness into heaven itself, you know what he says about us as brothers and sisters? He says, because of the efficacy of his work as the high priest, because of his redeeming work, he is not ashamed of me. You know what that means? That means that he boasts of you before the Heavenly Father. You will not understand your cultural moment if you do not understand who you are. You are, as Hebrews 3, 1 describes, those who share in the heavenly calling. What is that heavenly calling? Well, who is this Jesus? He's the one, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, who was sent from God the Father, came to earth, and then by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection, inherited the authority and privilege of the most excellent son, and he doesn't do it for himself. Hebrews describes him as the forerunner. You know what a forerunner does? He runs before. You know what that means? There are people running after him. You know who they are? They are his brothers and sisters of whom he is not ashamed. You know who that is? It's you. That's who you are. The entire purposes of God on the stage of history are defined by God's purposes in sending his son. Why did God send his son? He sent his son for you, and you are his precious, prized possession. Don't forget who you are. 
You will not understand this current moment historically, culturally, politically, if you forget who you are in Christ. Don't miss the weight of this. In a glorious way, by fixing our eyes on this Jesus, where the author tells us, consider Jesus. As we consider Jesus, you know what we discover? <laughs> that his entire ministry considers us. It's about you. It's about me. It's about us as his house, verse 6. We are his house. The book of Ephesians profiles this for us as well. If I can use what I describe as a sanctified syllogism to summarize the book of Hebrews. God has a plan. Hebrews 1. His plan is his church. End of Hebrews 1 into Hebrews 2. You are his church. Hebrews 2 and I'm sorry, Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. Note this. God has a plan. His plan is his church. You are his church. Guess what that means? Sanctified syllogism. You are his plan. Think of it. We are the delight of the heavenly Father. And his entire purpose for the design of history is to bring you to him. And nothing on the stage of history can thwart that. Nothing threatens your identity. Gerhardus Voss famously put it this way. God never will stop loving you because he never started. And what Voss means by that is there was never a time when God didn't love you. And the stage of history is a manifestation of that eternal love, and according to his all-wise and gracious counsel, he determined to redeem those whom he called to himself. And we are those people. You will not understand your historical moment if you do not understand who you are. But secondly, the author of Hebrews wants us to capture even something perhaps more poignant and less obvious. Not only do we need to know our preciousness, our value to God to understand our moment, to understand our historical moment, we also need to understand our place in the stage of history. <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of the Princess Bride. It's a confession. Some of you go, I'm not listening to another word he says. No. One of the oft-repeated lines from that film was the interaction with Indigo Montoya and the great and evil Vizzini, who with a nauseating repetition uses the word inconceivable. There is that inimitable moment in the film when Montoya looks at him and says, you keep using that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means. There is 
a great deal of misuse of vocabulary in our day and age. I won't even start that sermon. But there is a much greater problem, and it is a misunderstanding of history itself, or more, more poignantly perhaps, a misunderstanding of our historical moment. There is a temptation for us on this side of glory to become myopic, to see only what we can see around us in arguably very self-absorbed ways. Some of us think that no one has experienced the pain and alienation and suffering that we're undergoing. We feel very alone. Sometimes we misunderstand our historical moment by looking for political solutions. My future rests in whether or not my government does this or this candidate becomes the new officer in a particular government function. We are tempted as well to think existentially. My life will fall apart if I don't get this job or if I lose this job. If I don't get into this college, if I don't pass this test, if I get COVID-19. You are not interpreting your historical moment correctly if you interpret it through your own senses, according to the norms of the day, the conventions of our culture. You need to understand the story in order to understand your story. Let me urge you, turn off the news. They don't know what is going on. Listen instead to what God says is going on. In Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, the author of Hebrews lays before us an explanation of history, and he does so around the two towering figures of Old and New Testament. Moses and Jesus. Moses is that one with whom God had intimate fellowship. He's the one that God brought to the mountain of Sinai, where he gave him his law, mediated by angels. But God directly encounters Moses. He is the chief prophet of the Old Testament. He's identified in verse 2, look at this, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Moses is described as the faithful prophet. He is the high point of all of the Old Testament prophets. We actually see this explored and explained for us in Numbers chapter 12. Let's just say that Miriam and Aaron weren't always so pleased with Moses' leadership. And as Moses was leading and making decisions, Miriam and Aaron had a thing or two to say to their brother. And as they rebuked him, God reminded Miriam and Aaron that, hey, just a second here, the prophets other than Moses, I reveal myself to them through dreams and visions. But hey, you know Moses? Moses and I are in a face-to-face -face relationship. You better listen to Moses because he is my appointed prophet. 
But look at verse 5. Now, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Hold on a second. Do you realize what the author of Hebrews is saying about Moses? The greatest prophet of all the Old Testament? The one who enjoyed an intimacy with God like none other? He is saying that Moses' existence, his ministry, gains its value insofar as it points to Christ. To put it negatively, without Christ... Moses is not a high point. He is not even a blip on the screen. He's irrelevant. Now that would have shaken the very foundations of any Jew who became a follower of Christ in the first century. But why do I make mention of this? Why does the author of Hebrews want his readers in the first century that are undergoing persecution pressures politically, economically, socially, and culturally? Why does he want them to know about the prominence of Moses as well as the subjugation of Moses to Christ? Well, here's the point. Look at verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. First century believers, 21st century believers, understand this, that the promises of God that were in view in Moses' own mind and heart and role as the greatest prophet of old, they are merely a shadow of the Christ that was to come. Moses lived as the one who anticipated the Son. You first century and 21st century Christians live in the time in which the Word of God has been fulfilled. Christ Jesus has come, not as a servant in God's architectural project, but as the Son who has now taken possession and leadership over that project. Moses lived in preparation for the Son of God. You live when the Son has already come. Moses looked eagerly in his service to the day that you actually live in. What is striking about this is you and I are not Moses. We're even with greater privilege. Because we live at the moment in human history when we are those who share in the heavenly calling. What does Christ Jesus do? He is sent from the Father. He suffers. He learns obedience to the things which he suffered. He is appointed a priest, a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. He comes as the sent one who redeems his people, who's not ashamed to call us his brothers, and all of the promises of God have been realized in him. And you live at a stage in history as you make your wilderness wandering in the 21st century, awaiting your arrival into the new heavens and the new earth. As you wander, you do so in the presence 
and in the stage of history of the presence of the resurrected Son of God who has already sealed your redemption. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Do not lose sight of the fact that as you make your wilderness wandering, you don't do it alone. You do it at the point in history when Jesus Christ has already entered heaven. What does that mean? Hebrews 4.14 says that he has passed through the heavens. That is shorthand for the perfect execution of the purposes of God in Christ Jesus. He has passed through the heavens. He has, to use the language of Star Trek, he has gone where no man has gone before. He's come down to earth. He has suffered, died, was buried, raised again on the third day. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you. He boasts before the Father that you belong to him. No one can snatch you out of his hand. You live at a moment on the stage of history in which you're not waiting for the promises of God to be executed. You live at a moment in history when they already have. You are greater than Moses. God's building project is one that is carried out in the wilderness. You must traverse the wilderness just like the old covenant people of God. They were dependent upon God in palpable ways. Manna didn't come for a month. They didn't go buy a whole shelf full of manna at BJ's. It came every day. God meets us every day in the risen Christ. He gives us what we need. The threats in the wilderness are real. The provisions in the wilderness perfect. You have everything that you need. And your interpretation of your historical moments is tied to your identity and to the work of God in history. As you look at the political moment, the racial chaos, the economic uncertainty, as you look at the news and listen to the news, as you watch weather events, as you hear talk radio and consider elections, as you look at the arguments of conservative politicians and liberal politicians, as you seek to negotiate or navigate, I'm sorry, the, the uncertainty of what you are being told on the airwaves, you are faced with the temptation of actually thinking that American history is more important than God's work on earth. As you look at this cultural moment with its threats and its worries, I don't think they mean what you think they mean. The author of Hebrews says to us, even as he did to the first century church, consider Jesus. Because as you consider Jesus, you will discover that Jesus is about an architectural project. He is the one who is the son over the house, and he builds that house even as we find ourselves meandering through the wilderness. Did you ever look at the back of your Bible and see the map of how the people of God wandered in the Old Testament through the wilderness? 
you know, it was a much straighter line to the promised land, wasn't it? And what looks like absurdity is God's care for his people taking us by the hand and holding us certainly, perfectly, lovingly. And he will lose none of those who are his. Who are you? Where do you find yourself at this historical moment? Remember that as you develop your own paradigm, that your mental architectural project is built on sand, and it will not stay in the storms of life. But if you realize that you are the object of God's affection, that you are part of his building project, your standing is certain, for you are built on the rock of Jesus Christ. So what is this historical moment? It is the moment when Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Take heart. Consider this Jesus. Hold fast to your confession with confidence and boasting in our hope in Christ Jesus. Know your value and listen to the voice of God. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Let's pray together. Thank you, oh God, for your amazing love for us. Forgive us for our wavering hearts. Forgive us for the way in which we are inclined to worry, inclined to erect our own building project in our hearts and minds that are actually not only wrong, they're rebellious. Oh, give us the mind of Christ about these things. May we never forget who we are. May we never forget our place on the stage of history. May we remember how sweet is the name of Jesus. Give your people courage, O oh God. Grant us grace to operate with divinely appointed optimism, not in empty words, but in the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, who traversed the wilderness as our forerunner, and now is pleased to lead many sons and daughters to glory. We thank you and pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our time of worship this morning, let me encourage you to read along.